What does the word intentional mean for you? It's an important word. I think. I think what it means to me is I think it might be a it might be a good test for a behavior that I'm that I'm observing in myself or in somebody else. Right? Is this intentional? Right? Is this behavior intentional? What am I the the thing that I'm doing now? The conversation that I'm having now? The work that I'm doing? The thing that I'm building? The stuff that I'm buying? The stuff that I'm selling? What is my intent? What do I want to get out of that? What does the end of the runway look like? What does the horizon look like? Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. So do you ever wonder what it would be like to stay true to your inner child, have a lot of fun and really enjoy work and make wealth in the making? Well, we're going to be talking about that. And Will Pemmel, who is on the show, is an avid example and an avid preacher on how you can have fun and be a builder. I mean, Will, that is the best way to describe him, is a builder. He's a serial entrepreneur who loves building and selling companies. His most famous venture was building web.com, like I just said, which was a domain hosting and services firm that he sold in 2008. And if you haven't seen Will in business headlines, you might have seen Will on YouTube or Netflix talking about and showing his backyard role coaster amusement park with five fully functional roller coasters. Yeah, I'm literally not joking. If you go on YouTube, he has built these amazing roller coasters in the backyard of his of his house uh, for his kids, which puts me to shame as far as like what kind of parent I am. But Will just is literally true to his inner kid, which has been completely his theme along his career as an entrepreneur. But Will is not just about the play. He talks about the clarity of vision and how important that is in order to have the play that he loves so much. Early in his, his career, he attended a college to become a pilot purely out of interest. And there's a little bit of a backstory in the conversation he had with his parents. But when he was in college to be a pilot, he learned how important it was to have a crystal clear vision and direction of where you want to go or else you crash. Taking his pilot philosophy to business, he talks about how the slightest adjustments in the day-to-day operations of your company can impact the long-term value of your brand in the market and the valuation when you go to exit. It's about just like when you're a pilot flying, all the things that you're doing to course correct today and in the moment are going to impact your destination and when you get there and how successful you are of getting to that destination. Because understanding what you want from your business before you take off or start will make these train wrecks that we all know so well that are way more manageable and understand the impacts and how to course correct, like he talks about in his examples, in order to stay on track to hit that ultimate valuation or the ultimate options that you want long term for the business. Because having that clarity of vision makes it way more manageable from a leadership perspective as well as a strategic planning perspective to make sure that you're on track. So if you want to learn more about why vision clarity is so important and while he'll uh, hear in Will's story and having a bunch of laughs, seriously, <laughs> he's, a, he's, he's an absolute hoot. This episode's for you. And just a small disclaimer is uh, there's a, even though Will was a pilot, I think there was a couple more uh, sailor type words used along this episode. So just uh, I'd say listener beware, but really, really fun episode. He's got a great perspective and a lot of energy and a lot of laughs. So thanks everybody for tuning in. And uh, if there's actually one more note is if you wanted to go check out our intentional growth financial assessment that we just launched, we talk about how the financials become the clarity and how to bridge where you are today 
day towards that ultimate destination. So it's really the roadmap that Will's talking about. The financials help uh, see where you're at and where you want to go. And there's a financial assessment that we created that's got 23 questions and you get a score overall on your financials as well as the different components. And then there's a, a follow-up result page that's got a bunch of videos that show what good looks like that Pat and I recorded to make sure everybody's on track. So again, thanks for everybody for tuning in. And here is my episode with Will. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Good morning, Will. How are you? Ryan, what's shaking, man? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I am so damn excited because we, you and I chatted literally last year, not too long ago, though. And uh, Chris Yonker had done the intro because you were on his show and there's so many common connections. And I got on and I honestly like, like we got on the call and I was like, I don't even know exactly why we're on there. But then within what one minute, I was like, who gives a shit? Because this is a blast of a conversation. <laughs> I think you were sitting with a, you were building your new RVs and you were talking about your roller coaster background. And then, oh, by the way, you sold a company. And I was like, hey, you should come on the show. So, Will, if people are not familiar with you, let's just give the like the 30,000 foot overview of a little bit more color in the, the multiple things I just mentioned. What you, you know, what's your background? And then we can jump back into the, the web.com. Okay, sure, sure. Um, if you want, I can just I'll like, give you the ninety second thing. Yeah, do it. I'll try to I'll try to do it even faster than that. So I'll get in front of a room full of people or a keynote or whatever, and nobody knows who the hell I am or what the hell I'm doing here. I'll usually say something like, "Hi, my name is Will Pemble. I uh, once upon a time I built and sold Web.com, which started in my Connecticut basement and grew to be uh, the nineteenth biggest web hosting company in the world. And we were competing with about a hundred thousand other companies at the time. So I feel like while it's not an indoor world record, it's pretty good." In 2007, I sold that company, uh, which, by the way, we operated profitably from day one. In 2007, I sold that company and then shortly exited that company after that and turned into kind of a management consultant to answer the question that I was constantly getting, which is, which was, how did you do that? And the answer is not probably what most people would think. Uh, so since then, I've created a company called Goal Boss. Mastermind and Goal Boss is a management and leadership consulting and training company. We certify Goal Boss coaches. We teach people at every level of their careers how to get what they say they want and also how to be clear on what they want so they know how to say it so they can actually get it. A side hustle of mine, which started kind of during the pandemic, is a company called Hack My Van. I bought a Sprinter van and turned it into like a really fancy RV. And so now one of my one of my side hustle jobs is is over the course of 2022, we're going to build uh, like five or six or seven of these $350,000 super luxe uh, Sprinter van based RVs. And uh, and then there's other stuff that I do. But but generally, my mission in life is to help people get what they say they want in business. I love it, Will. And like, and no joke, like when we jumped on, you you like were in your shop. You're like, oh, by the way, I started like making these vans. And then, but like, it, it was so crazy because you're like, oh, and I, some people also know know me as the roller coaster dad. So I need you to give us some color behind that because I'm like, holy shit, I've actually seen one of those videos without even knowing it. So I think we were like halfway through the conversation and I, I connected the dots. I was like, oh, that is, you You put me to shame from a fatherly fun activity perspective. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Well, that was actually one of the goals, Ryan, is, um, 
I've I've built a couple of roller coasters, and as as you know, and if you anybody who starts to Google me, they'll be like, "Oh my god!" and they'll they'll freak out. So I built like five different backyard roller coasters. One of them was the fastest backyard roller coaster in the world. Netflix came and filmed the build of one of the roller coasters. I've been on Good Morning America, you know, millions and millions of views of of crazy YouTube videos. And to your point about fatherhood, the reason I started making those videos was to show Grandma Lois the progress. Let's just like show Grandma Lois how me and the kids were doing building the roller coaster. And then also to like definitively prove to my brother that I was a much, much better dad than him. And those were the only two reasons that I that I put those videos up. And then they just turned into this whole this whole crazy thing. thing. I mean, like yeah. hundreds of thousands of views on these. I mean, it's like, it's no joke either. And like, it's not like some shitty roller coaster either. Like these are legit. I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. So- the first one was a little shitty. The first one, the first one was kind of like lumber and PVC and all of that. And then, but then, but then, you know, like everything you, you evolve it. And so, you know, I was like, wow, you know, it'd be really better if we, if we could make this thing with uh steel. And I was like, okay, well, we're going to need like steel rollers and we're going to need welding machines and plasma cutters and all that sort of stuff. So like, you know, off to, off to it, Harbor Freight we go. <laughs> my, my kids are like, hey, can you put together this like playhouse? I'm like, no, thank you. It's got a directions. I don't want anything to yeah. do with that. Yeah. Well, my, All right, my so, office is is like a 3,000 square foot warehouse, 25 foot ceilings, 14 foot roll up doors. And the reason my office is there is because it's a really good business decision and it's, you know, really affordable real estate. And also you could, you can build pretty much anything you want. I'm, I'm, I was talking yesterday to a guy, the walls inside the warehouse are all white and fun fact, Space Mountain, the the roller coaster at Disneyland, mm-hmm. the interior of that building, when the lights are on, it's all white. The tracks are white. Oh, Everything is white because they shoot those stars. And so the whole thing is a projection yeah. screen. So we were talking about maybe the possibility of building a, a Space Mountain style coaster in the office. So we'll all right. So I'm going to use all of this as a launching pad into going, okay, because the reason I like I enjoyed our first conversation so much is I I had lots of ideas, lots of passions. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to the flashy object syndrome. I want to go back to when you started web.com. Like I used to open up for years, Will, with a, hey, why'd you decide to become an entrepreneur? And everybody goes, well, I never decided. I just accidentally. So yeah. I'm, I'm curious, like their originations or the origin story, like, hey, where were you and how did you, like, what was, what did you want with it? And why did you start the business? So I, I talked I talk to, uh, I met a lady on Clubhouse a couple of days ago, and her name is Dora Maria Abreu, and um, and she's like really cool, and I was impressed with her, and we got to talking a little bit, and I and I found out that like one of her first jobs ever was at IBM, and as it happens, my first grown up job ever was you know the first job where I ever had to wear like pants was was at IBM, and. I mentioned her. I was like, oh, IBM. Yeah, I worked at NDD headquarters actually on some of the first PC projects way back in the day. You know, 640K of RAM was crazy. And and um, and then, but the seminal moment, the pivotal moment for me in my career at IBM was when my second line manager, who is my boss's boss, uh, stopped me in the hall one day and said, hey, Will, I'm John or whatever his name was. It's like, hey, I'm John. Just, you know, nice to meet you. I wanted to, you know, welcome you to the, welcome you to the team. Nice socks. Are those purple? Anyway, we don't, run in the halls here at IBM. And um and that was that was my first interaction with like senior management in any in any organization ever. And 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 so the takeaway for me for that from that interaction is like 
I don't fucking belong here. Right? I mean, it's just like these are <laughs> these are not my house. people. This is not my place. This building is too. Fa- I'm not comfortable in this in this fanciness. And so, so when you, if somebody were to ask me, it's like, why did you decide to become an entrepreneur? You know, my answer would be kind of two parts. It would be like. I don't recall ever making the decision, but if I had made the decision, it would be because I just wasn't suited to anything else, right? And so, like, why did you become an entrepreneur? It's like asking somebody, so why'd you choose uh, type 2 diabetes? What was What's the deal about that? It's like, well, fuck, I didn't have a, you know, I just, I I was born with it. I can't help it. <laughs> so, they in the hall, they like sprinter vans, roller coasters, movies, and yeah. like tons of random stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, if... If I'm being honest, and I think if any entrepreneur is being honest, it's like, you know, I didn't choose this. I don't want to be this way. I mean, so all I want is just, I would love to be just like satisfied, right? <laughs> that would be so great, right? Can you imagine so waking you- up and just like being satisfied? I don't know anything about that. And so that's why I'm an entrepreneur is like, I'm always either seeing a problem and wanting to solve it or creating a problem and wanting to solve it. But that's that's what got me into this thing is I had no choice, no choice at all. So what was that like then going from IBM and then was it, was it directly to web.com and then maybe talk about like a little bit of how that idea turned into something. Sure. Sure like well well IBM was a summer job when I was in college. I went to I went to college to learn aeronautical engineering and how to fly and so I so I'm a commercial instrument pilot and a flight instructor and all those things. And the reason I went to college to learn how to fly <laughs> is I didn't want to go to college at all. I didn't, you know, and but you know, my family was like, "Look, you're not going to be the first Pemble who doesn't go to college." And so you can just like forget that. I mean, you will literally we will kill you before you don't get an education. I was like, "Okay, fine. Airplanes. How do you like me now?" And that was the that was the that was your rebellion. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, OK, fine. I'm going to fly airplanes. Huh? What do you think of that? And then accidentally, if when you when you learn to fly airplanes, that education for me, my pilot training is some of the most valuable education I ever got, because you learn things like how do you how do you just intuitively or instinctively or through muscle memory, how do you predict the results of a little minor control input. I'm going to do a little teeny thing today or right now in the airplane. I'm just going to like do that with the yoke. Mm -hmm. How is that going to affect the immediate behavior of the airplane, the, the, the destination, what time I get there, what altitude, how much fuel that's going to cost? Am I in danger? I better look both ways before. And so, so when you learn to fly an airplane, there's a, there's a, uh, a couple of things are super important and and relevant about that to I think anybody who's trying to do something impactful. The first thing there's this saying where you want to where you want to stay ahead of the airplane, which means I'm not looking inside the cockpit. I'm not looking at my instruments, maybe corner my eye and stuff, but what I'm doing is I'm trying to look to the horizon. I want to I if I if I like landing an airplane, if I look at the end of the runway when I'm on final I'm going to land that airplane beautifully and it's going to it's just going to like grease onto the runway and roll out super smooth. But if I'm focused on the numbers at the very beginning of the runway, I'm just going to plow into the runway, you know, and boom and bang mm-hmm. and bounce and do all sorts of do all sorts of non-graceful things. Mm-hmm. So that so that's one thing is pilot training taught me to kind of stay ahead of the airplane, stay ahead of my life, uh figure out everything that I'm doing matters. Everything you do as a pilot in command of an airplane matters. Everything you do as the pilot in command of your life matters. There's no trivial choices, decisions, actions. Everything 
ends up being the ingredients of whatever whatever goes on next. Mm-hmm. And so that was there's no better way that I can think of to learn that than learning how to fly airplanes because the cost of doing it wrong in an airplane is you're going to kill yourself or you're going to kill somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not dangerous, but it's unforgiving. And and part of the problem in business is that business can be pretty forgiving and so you can get away with a lot of stupid mistakes and that's why people don't crush it all day every day because business can be so forgiving. And so I try to treat everything I do in business like I'm flying an airplane, right? Well, it's super interesting. First of all, absolutely love the analogy, Will. And and I, I can relate because when I was uh, downhill extreme mountain biking in New Zealand and they said, do not look in front of you because if you hit the brakes because of what's in front of you, you're you're totally effed. And, I, I, and then they're like, say, look two feet, three feet in front of you. My buddy didn't. He looked in front of him. He hit it. Hand totally ass over decal. Just went, this is so ridiculous. But it's so interesting. I love the analogy. The destination, I think, and this is where when we right before we hit record, talking about the destination being a more valuable company and some sort of event at some point. Most people are flying a plane right now, which is their business, and they don't know they they kind of accidentally got in the plane, accidentally got in the pilot seat, and they didn't know where they're going because they don't know what creates long-term value. Yep. So how did you take all of these concepts and apply that. Did you, did all that hit you and you incorporated that right when you started web.com or like, what was the level of intentionality when you started it? Um, well, no web.com sort of, when we recognized we had something, we started to get pretty purposeful about the thing, but, but web.com was, it's like the third or fourth company I think the uh, the the first company I made was was a little internet service provider company in San Francisco, and this was this was back in the 1900s where you would need a dial up modem and software on your computer, and you know that you know 56k was just like blazing fast, and and we did some things and solved some problems so that we could connect lots and lots of people uh, through dial up. Most of those things were legal, and um, and and so we we had. We don't have time to to tell you the story of how we managed to like expand our area to like ten times any other little ISP. But I, we built an ISP and we learned some things about customer service. We learned some things about the value of a customer, lifetime customer value. We learned some things about capacity. Right? If you have ten customers, that you know, ten people on one modem or you know, bank of modems, that's like capacity. So how can you have a hundred customers? Well, they don't all get on at once, and so on and so forth. And so, man, learning. Really important, you know, f- sort of fundamental basic lessons of of capacity planning and logistics, that sort of thing. Uh, the next thing we did was because I ran this ISP company, I got technical and I got a Microsoft certification and a Cisco certification, and I learned a bunch of technical things. I'm not I'm not I'm not technical natively, but it's it but is I am fluent in that language, uh, but it's a second language for me. And so then what we did was we took the lessons that we got from getting all of our training and our certifications and all those things, and we started a training company. And so I built this company called IT Academy. And the and the goal of that company, the mission of that company was to train people to take their Microsoft certified systems engineer exams and their Cisco certified network associate. And so Microsoft and Cisco certifications. We ended up with two offices, one in San Francisco, one in Denver, training thousands of people uh, to to go through these things because it was really important. You know, like if you're having somebody work on your network, you'd really like them to be certified by the company who builds the hardware and software of the network. So, so that happened. 
sold that company. And then, and then what I learned about there is I learned about managing people and I learned about, you know, moving, moving big crowds of folks. I learned about how do you get a point across to somebody? They're going to go and take this certification exam. How do you find the 20% of the subject matter that they absolutely need to know? Because the 80% is not going to be on the test, right? It's all, everything is, everything is mm-hmm. Pareto principle, right? And that's not, mm-hmm. that's not how people decide it. That's like a universal constant. And so that was a really fun company. And we sold the ISP, by the way, just to a bigger company that we started to be a pain in the ass to. And they just came along and bought our customers. They, they looked okay. in our like closet of, of tech and they're like, yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't need any we of that. We customers want, we want the customer information and we're going to start by apologizing for them to them for like whatever the hell that situation is. <laughs> but we learned that a customer has value. We learned that there's like a book value and I get a new customer and that customer is not worth, you know, $24 a month or whatever it was. That customer is worth the lifetime customer value, probably times some multiple because it's a customer. And if I do it just exactly like that, there's that, but then there's also potential values and forks in the road and and other, mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. places we can go with that relationship. And I didn't know any of that when I was doing it, when we were doing that business, I didn't know any of that stuff. And if I had, I would have made a lot more money. Right. So, but the, <laughs> which is hopefully why people are listening to the show. Cause that is exactly right. Right. Dude, is, wow. That was expensive. <laughs> all day, every day, people in business make choices that directly impact the present and future value of their company. And I've done it enough times. I've done it smartly a couple of times. I've done it poorly a, more times than I could possibly count. But I've got enough experience with it now, and I've been, you know, I'm sure you're, I'm sure you're in the exact same boat. It's probably even worse for you. The whole world of business, from your perspective, it's got to be just like watching a series of train wrecks, right? Or, or like the, you know, the girl running upstairs when the murderer is coming to the, you know, it's like, don't do that. Oh, it's, oh, it's like watching, it's like the matrix where you see the zeros and ones and you're like, holy shit, everybody's fucking plugged in. Yeah. It's like, oh God, you're just not that. And as we get more public, as we get more, you know, as the world comes in, you know, to the transparency and the vulnerability and all that stuff, it's like, it, it makes it so much better if you know what the fuck you're doing and it makes it so much worse if you don't, because like I watched, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to name names, but in recent history, I watched somebody systematically dismantle the future value of their business and their brand. Mm-hmm. And I get, you know, I'll, sometime when the camera's not rolling, I'll tell you the story, man, but it was, it was just like, you know, and then people would, people like reached out to me or wanted to talk about this. Like, Hey man, did you see the thing? I was like, yeah, those are, uh, those are not, um, leadership choices. Uh, um, my, maybe I would have made, but like, but all day, every day we do things and we do it because it's like, Oh, I want to be real and I want to be vulnerable. And I want to be okay. Yeah. Okay. But you also want to be a leader, right? You want to instill confidence and you want to know what the hell you're doing. So, but everything matters in running a business, especially the public's perception of the business. Well, and, and, and why I put up my hands while you're saying that, because like when you go back to your flight analogy, Will, and what you're saying about the, and I love how you're saying it, the, 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 everything impacts the, the current and the future 
simultaneously. Yeah. And when you're flying a plane, you know that because you've got a destination that's clear. You know what you're flying. You know how you're doing it. And you know how that works. Whereas in like so many people are that it's like the definition of a lifestyle business. You can have an $80 million lifestyle business where you're just doing things for the end of the year tax return. Yep. And it's just like, and then you're like, wait, I'm, this plane has to freaking land somewhere and I got to do something with it. And people don't know that one decision impacts the, the present and the future because they don't know what the future looks like or could be. Yeah. And, and they're, and they're, and they also not planning for it. Right. I mean, how many, how many acquisitions start out um, or how many acquisitions like are on purpose, right? And and you know, and I'm I'm the first to say it's like it was never my intent to have web.com get acquired, right? I didn't that wasn't my mindset. I wasn't thinking along those lines. It never all of those things never occurred to me and and honestly, if they had, I'd be a fucking billionaire right now, right? <laughs> I mean, just like without question, I'd be a billionaire if I knew the stuff then that I know now. And the cr- the crazy part, I mean, <clears throat> you know, I'm not I'm not motivated by money. It's a great way to keep score, and it's good for buying, you know, ski trips and stuff. But but, uh, <laughs> but you know, so I I enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. But it's like you know, it's like hey, we'll give you a lot of money if you do this. Like yeah, whatever. But the point of growing a business, you have to decide early on in your business. First of all, is there is this a li- like you said? Is this is this a business or is this a job? Is this a lifestyle? Business and like you say, there can be there can be hundred million dollar, fifty million dollar, eighty million dollar, be huge lifestyle businesses, and there's a couple of ways to tell, right? If you stop going to work, does the money stop coming? That's that's a good sign, right? But you should choose, and you should do it consciously, and that's and that's kind of the thing of it. And if you choose, it's like I want to be the biggest whatever in the world, or I want to be the most popular this, or I want to be the you know the I want to be the Kleenex of whatever. If that's what you say you want, then your behavior must align with that, which means you have to know that the very best case scenario is you're going to end up owning 16% of your kajillion dollar company, which I'm, which I'm pretty sure is how much Bezos owns of Amazon. And that's like alien level unique. Really, mm-hmm. what will probably happen is if you want to, if you want this to be a real business and you want to get it funded and all of that and go public, you're going to own single digit percentage of your business when it's all said and done, and and that's very few people can get their head around that, uh, and and very few people can think about like somebody. I'm sure people come to you all day every day. It's like, hey man, help me run my business. It's brand new and I'm just getting started, and I'll give you, uh, you know, like twenty five percent of it, and. Right there, somebody offers me 25% of their business. I'm like not interested because I know it isn't worth anything if you're mm-hmm. going to give me 25% of it on day one. It's like, you know, basis points. It's like, yes. look, this is a billion dollar thing. I'm going to give you a couple of basis points and you'd be lucky to have it. I'm really curious how you make that assessment, what you see and how you, you know, what you look at in a, in a, a new business or something that you think might have legs. What's, what's the calculus from your perspective? How clear people are on where they want to go. I I can't believe how few people understand and can articulate what they want long-term. It's just shocking to me because I've always operated like that. I mean, I grew up in sales. So it's like, I want to make a shitload of money or I want to be this or I want, so it's just like back into the plan. And it's like, well, how in the hell am I supposed to know what I'm going to wake up and do if I don't know where I'm going? And I get, cannot believe, Will, how few people don't get insane amount of anxiety about not knowing where they're going and why they're doing what they're doing. Because I was the, I was the uh, problem child in school where I'm like, why? Why? 
Why? Why? <laughs> like, why? So read this book with a bunch of black and white pictures and a bunch of people with wigs and learn about history. Why? Like, learn about finance. Why? And so, like, the, I think just the amount of times I ask that I just have to know so I know why I'm doing what I'm doing every day. And by the way, it's a, going back to your satisfaction. It's way more satisfying yeah. <laughs> to understand how to deal with the, 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 you know, the bumps in the road like you talked about. So, like, how clear were you with web.com? You said you would have been a billionaire. Yeah, I know there was tongue-in-cheek there. But, like, what, what was the, the learning curve of, like, or the, the, the clarity learning curve of, like, where you, your destination was going? Did you want to be the Kleenex? Did you want, like, what was it that was driving you and waking you up every day? Um, well, we, we to, to a large extent, right, and I was, you know, this was, you know, it's a, it was a really, it's a really successful story. But, again, it's like, you know, it's like a million-dollar story, not a billion-dollar story. But it could have been a billion-dollar story had I focused more. You know, if, if you and I had been hanging around together, it'd, it'd be a billion dollar. It'll be a billion dollar story, except that I think you were like 12. So uh, <laughs> I do remember the AOL thousand free hours a month. So I do remember that. Well, I'm I, found a little... <laughs> one of those, I found one of those CDs in a, one of those mailers, you know, they just like, fire oh, you, mailers every, it's gotta be worse than money now. <laughs> and we were, we were cleaning out my mother-in-law's garage. We were down there digging through my mother-in-law's garage. And I found like, I was like, oh my God, this is an AOL CD. It's like, this is a, a collector's item. <laughs> right. But, um, but in, in, so in terms of the clar clarity for web.com, we were, we were very, we weren't super far ahead of the airplane, right? We were looking at the end of the runway, but we weren't looking at the, you know, we weren't looking to the horizon, which is usually about 35, 40 miles away. We weren't, we weren't looking that far down the road but we did we did have a, a couple of things that were sort of north star for us one of the things was this idea this idea about you know the answer is yes what's the question right and so when so when talking to a customer the answer is yes what's the question and that's actually what got us into the web hosting business in the first place we started out just selling domain names and we got really good at that and we broke the code on adwords and we were you know we were crushing that business but it's a high volume, low mm -hmm. dollar game. And, but the answer is yes, what's the question? So a lot of the times the question from our customer was, how do I set up my web hosting? And our answer was like, well, we don't actually sell web hosting, but there's these guys called Host Pro and they're really cool and you can go there and you can get them set up. And, and, and you know, they're, they're like awesome. Alex is the CEO of that company. We know him, we're a customer, we use their data center. And, um, and then people would go, they'd say, okay, thanks, bye. And then they'd go get their web hosting. And then they'd call us back a couple of days later. It's like, cool. I went over to HostPro and I'm now paying them for web hosting. Thanks. That's fantastic. How do I set up my email? Well, uh, HostPro has a customer service department. They, they know how to do that. And they're frankly better at it than us. But, you know, you're on the phone. Why don't we just help you anyway? And so we just, we ended up, you know, providing technical support for web hosting customers that weren't our customers and so like you know like what's the, what's the saying is is the fucking i'm getting worth the fucking i'm getting and um <laughs> and so and so the answer to that question in some meeting or other was like clearly not we are alex's customer support department and he's a great guy and all but let's get into the hosting business so again what we did was we we, we recognize it's like you know lifetime customer value we've got a domain name customer we can keep them forever nobody ever changes unless you you, you have to like actively screw them over but what about web hosting what about web design and so we we learned some things but but it was very from from again looking back it was very transactional and it was very lifestyle business oriented because at the same time, 
we were making up this industry as we went. I mean, there weren't a lot of people doing what we did, right? We were the first mm-hmm. company to offer private domain registration. Now it's everywhere. You couldn't, you'd yeah, never register say, a People listening in going like, holy crap. Yeah, like this we is, were the first I mean, company to big. offer alternate domain name suggestions. No, your domain name's not available. How about, you know, ryanisawesome.com instead of ryan.com. <laughs> Sign me out. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, we did all of these things. We built all of these really cool technologies and some of them were patented and hosting automation and blah, blah, blah. The value of it didn't really occur to us until after we built it. And so so a lot of it was sort of like finding treasure that we had buried ourselves before we knew it was treasure when we mm, got to the mm-hmm. when we got to the negotiation to actually sell the company. And and you know, I'm every once in a while I'm pretty quick on the uptake. And so we knew the things that were valuable about our company because they're the things that the other guys told us like, well, you know, your private domain name registration business, that's not really that interesting, but we'll probably just take take that off your hands anyway. And we're like, yeah, that's going to be extra. And so, <laughs> so we were like, so anything they told us they didn't want, we were like, oh, well, it's good that you don't want that because it's not part of it. <laughs> and, then, and so, so we learned, we learned fast. But again, I just, I think to myself, if I look back at that um, and I'm, and I'm, and we're in, you know, me and my little, my little consulting gang here, my little goal boss world here right now, we're in kind of a similar, I'm in a similar situation right now, but I know stuff that I didn't know before, but going back to the, you know, it's kind of on the, on the web.com side of things. If we started out and had an acquisition plan, like a written plan for getting acquired. It's like, this is how we're going to go do this. This is how we're going to get the money. The, I, the, the point of this business is to sell some or all of it. This is the kind of, this is the kind of investor that we want. This is the kind of funding that we want. This is the kind of company that we want to buy us. This is what we want the following roles to look like after the acquisition. Some are going to go away. Some are going to change. What is all that going to look like? You don't have to be surprised by any of it. I was surprised by most of it because I was deeply focused on the problem solving, the technology side of it, the 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 leadership the market, people side of right? it, right? I was I loved what I was doing. And you know, and so like somebody an investor looks at somebody like, you know, Will Pemble circa 2005, you know, you you look at somebody like me running a company like that, and then there's like this little thought bubble over your head, like a cartoon thought bubble with like a roasted chicken and steam is coming up, and you're like, "Oh, <laughs> that guy!" Right? Just drooling. Yeah, like, <clears throat> well, you know, well, let's. Let, I want. I want to pull that thread, Will, because the amount of you, when you said that, you know, I get these calls from people, or how many train wrecks do you see? And it's it's almost sometimes the lack of the train wreck and the the fact that someone doesn't know that the train wreck happened. And because like you, like you said, there's yeah. the person, but then there's the other buyer that's got the chicken roasted and, the, and them drooling. I mean, I get people like, hey, I got this out of the boo off and we're running towards it because they want to get the deal done. I'm like, well, no shit. If you want, if you, if someone, if you stumbled across a piece of commercial real estate that was providing a 50% cap rate and you could buy it like so cheap, like, yes, like, of course you want to buy that as yeah. soon as possible before people figure it out. Yeah. And, and it, it, what happens is, is it, they don't know because it's, there's this un, lack of understanding of the value that was created to not understand that. Cause I think a lot of the, a lot of times it's people going, holy shit, this is actually worth something. Like let's quickly sell it before I get, before they find out that 
it's not worth anything yeah. when it's actually the complete inverse for the most part. <laughs> and when you had said at the beginning, when you look back and you had that story of someone eroding their value every day, or even yourself, if you would have known what this looks like, what are some of the things in web.com that you didn't know, like the decisions might've been different if you understood what created long-term value? Well, I mean, you know, it's obviously it's, it's, it's easy to, it's easy to call them on Monday morning, right? Or I guess Tuesday morning now, but um, it's, it's easy to look back and say, I would have done this different. I would have done that different. I think, I think one of the thing, one of a mistake that I see a lot is, and, and I would imagine that you've got, you've got a couple of things to say about this. What I, what I think the, the mistake that I made and I think the mistake that that lots of lots of folks make, and I watch that happen on a pretty regular basis, is I'll either take the whole business or 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 more likely components of the business, and I will either I will either vastly undervalue or vastly overvalue different components of the business. And so, how do I objectively assess? the value not of the not just of the whole company but how do i objectively assess the value of like the major components of that organization because most of the choices and decisions that we make as people we make these decisions based on emotion we make these decisions based on 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 calculations like 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 the house that i'm in i bought this house 20 something years ago without ever seeing it because i liked the name of the road it was on and that's and that tickled me, and so I made like a multi hundred thousand dollar decision in on a whim because it because it it would make it was hilarious, um, you know, and it worked out okay and fine and whatever. But like generally speaking, you know, like the biggest decision you make in in your life for for almost all of us is the house we buy, and I did it because the name made me laugh, and so that's. And so like, so that's like one example of it, but like I'll undervalue or I'll overvalue parts of my business and I will assign, and for emotional reasons, and that makes me very hard to deal with from the other side of the table, right? It's like, oh my God, that fucking guy, right? He likes the name of it. Uh, where do you go with that? And so how do, how do your, you know, how do your people, your clients in your world, how do you... How do you navigate that? How do you how do you manage that thing? Or is it just me? <laughs> oh, it's a super good question though, Will. <clears throat> because I'm trying to think of how I would answer this for myself. Cause I, I my approach for myself before I answer it, because everybody's slightly different. Because everybody's either you, the, you buy with emotion, justify with with logic. And that's you know, the universal salesperson's mantra is like, I think that the more technical shit I know the more I can be emotional and be free to be emotional and then kind of weigh it against the pros and cons. Yeah. So it, it, I don't know. It's like the discipline equals freedom stuff. You know what I mean? Like you, you be disciplined. So then what you can do, whatever the hell you want, you want to do sprinter vans or roller coasters or whatever, yeah. but you've kind of thought through and there was a, uh, the, the sequence of events. And there was a gentleman I just interviewed on the show recently. He called the lucky formula, how to stack the odds in your favor to be lucky. So it's essentially like, I don't know exactly how that situation is going to unfold, but I'm going to increase the, my odds of having that kind of experience. Yeah. So being able to be emotional because we all want to be. And so like, for example, like if you focus on growing a more valuable business, I believe, and I've, I've seen it is that you're going to have the choices. So if someone comes and gives you an out of the blue offer, you say, this is what I want. If you don't want this pound sand, 
And then because you, you have a plan because you've done the discipline, but it allows you to then say, hey, this is emotional. And I do want to make that because I don't give a shit. And because I've already thought through the ramifications of mm -hmm. it. I don't know if that, and again, some people say, well, that's too much work. And I'm like, well, then you're just going to be kind of not looking at the horizon. Like you said, you're going to potentially run it into a side of a cliff because you have clouds. I don't know. Yeah. It's like, yeah, just don't, don't do the work. If you don't feel like it, don't do the work. It's no problem. Somebody else will do it. <laughs> yeah. Like somebody else, somebody else will write your narrative. They're going to go ahead and take a big bite into that steamy chicken that they see you as. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, we, we were, you know, we were young and hardworking and we, and we worked we worked as hard on ourselves as we worked on our technology. And so we worked as hard on, you know, sort of like personal transformation. I got to be the best me I can. I got to be the best communicator I can. Uh, not, not for some crazy, like altruistic woo woo reason, but it's just like, I don't have enough time in a day to ask you to do the same thing twice. I need to know you understood me the first time because I won't have time to come back and I really won't have time to undo it if I communicated mm -hmm. poorly. And so, mm -hmm. so we learned how to communicate. We learned how to communicate very crisply. And we would, everybody in the organization, we would say things like, okay, now can you repeat that back to me? So I know I did a good job of communicating it. And then the person would say it back and it was like, yes, that's it. Or yes, that's it. But this one thing, could you say that back to me one more time? Yes. I'm going to do this one coffee, two creams delivered to your office at three 15 or whatever the, whatever the ask was. Mm -hmm. Um, so we got really good at communication. We got really good at delegation. We got really good at, at whenever a task would come across, the question was, am I the only person on earth who can do this task? And if so, I'm going to do it. Assuming it's an important thing to get done. If I'm the only person on this earth or in this building who can do it, I'm going to do it. But if there's anybody else who's not me who can do this, I'm going to delegate it to them. And then there are literally 13 steps you take in order, one at a time, to effectively delegate to somebody a task. And if you do it exactly that way, exactly every time, 80% of the things you delegate are going to be done just exactly the way you want. And so you can bank on delegation if you do it well, right? Time management. It's the only thing you can't get more of, right? Take my people, I'll mm -hmm. get more. Take my money, no problem. Burn down my building, that's fine. I know where some trees are, I'll make another building. And but but if you take my time, I can't do anything. And if I if I waste my own time, so so like when we would do meetings, there's two promises. If I accept a meeting, here's my first promise. I'll show up and be ready to work at the moment the meeting starts. I will be on time. And the second promise is when the meeting is scheduled to end, you can count on me to stand the fuck up from my chair and walk out of the room because all you get is all I promised. And that's and that's how we did it. So like when you're out of time, you're out of time. And then we managed, you know, problem solving through it. So like we got really, really, really crisp at managing ourselves in a super disciplined way. And that's if and if you do that, you can compete with GoDaddy, who has more money than God. Right. And they're the number one guys. And they had hundreds of times more customers than us and thousands of times more dollars than us. But we ran with those dogs every day because nobody managed themselves better than we managed ourselves. I love it because it, like, it's very much to the discipline equals freedom and philosophy that I was kind of talking about. Because, you know, you, you got this playful kid spirit, but then also you just got very serious about the shit that matters. And it's that yin and yang. And when I is the I only way you can play. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. To go back to your question is like, I believe that I can have more fun, express myself more, have more fun. If the other 80% of the shit is done the right way. 
So my question is, you know, I can only imagine from all the other things that you're doing these days that web.com was your sandbox and your playground with your people and self-development and, you know, all these, the scorecard, all that stuff. Why did you sell and why did you decide to sell? I was, I, I wanted to, I wanted to do something else. I just like straight up. I was, you know, it was, I'm, I'm a builder. I love that. You know, I love, I love starting from zero and getting to something, getting to a point where it's interesting to somebody who, who wants to take it over. Um, and so that's, that's why I sold it. If I'd have kept it, uh, it would, it would have, uh, you know, again, all the really cool, interesting, you know, hair on fire, stay up late, all of that stuff. I absolutely love that because I am an entrepreneur. I don't want, you know, good morning, Blanche, you know, walking down the hall, same thing, you know, it's like, don't I, run in the halls, yeah. Will. <laughs> yeah. I want to run in the halls, right? I don't want to walk down the halls and I don't want to own the fucking halls for very long either. And so that's, that's why I sold it because what I do is start a company and get it to the point where it's interesting to an investor. And then they come and say, you know, maybe you're not the guy to take this the long way. And I'm like, oh, I certainly am. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I want it. I wanted to sell it because I wanted to move on to the next. That's the part that's that's the part that's like fun and exciting. I'm I'm like horrible, you know. I'm I'm the worst employee you'd ever want to have. And, and we're gonna get to that. I want to I want to ask you some stories about that because I know that there are some when you were the employee. But how did you know, or what happened where you realized that your board needed to move on? I beg your pardon. How how did you know that you were bored and needed to move on, or you it was time to sell? Like how did you, like was there a situation? And because I, I guess my the the point of the question was like was it an out of the blue offer, and then you realized it, or did you hate the job, and then you like decided to no, take no, an no. out of the blue offer? We, we loved it all day every day, and we were growing all day every day, and it was there was like plenty of challenges, right? And things weren't like hunky dory, you know. Look at this awesome cash machine. That's not what Web.com was when we when we were in that negotiation. I mean, we had our fair share of uh, adventures, to be sure. My feeling about if you're if you if you know who you are, if you know you're an entrepreneur and you know you know you're the person who's going to like build something and sell it and build something else and sell it and this is not the last idea I'm ever going to have. Yeah, it's a good one whatever. My feeling about that is the time to sell your business is the time that somebody wants to buy it. That's that's my feeling about that. And so so like and I've I've never been I've never had any emotional attachment to the actual corporate entity or the customers of the business or all that stuff. It's like, dude, you want to buy it? You think you can do better? And that's going to be awesome for me. And I can compress, you know, several years of income into like a day. Yeah. I'm interested in that because, and, and that's, it, it never occurred to me to think, oh my gosh, but this is my last big idea. I'm never going to write. It's like, like if Bezos sold Amazon 15 years ago, he wouldn't have disappeared from the world. We would still have him doing something, right? But he just like mm -hmm. stuck with it, loves it. He's a, you know, he's a long-term player and he, he owns a, you know, he's got, he's got a very specific vision of what he wants the solar system to look like. And he's positioned himself perfectly to, to leverage that. Um, most of us aren't him. Most of us don't have whatever the hell that is. Uh, for me, I want to sell my company when somebody wants to buy it, because I know, and I, I want to understand, it's like, what are you going to do with it? How's it going to look? What's your plan? I'm, you know, if certainly I've got a dog in the fight and I've got an interest in that, but it's never been a concern of mine. It's like, well, what if this is my last idea? What if I can't make something else, you know, like that? So in, in your experience, so, and I, I think that there's, 
I mean, totally get it. And, and I see that what you just said is on the rarer side for, I'm going to, and the definition of entrepreneur business owner, I think is probably something to probably unpack. We don't have to do it now, but entrepreneur being serial entrepreneur, doing it multiple times, lots yeah. of ideas, you know, launching something versus a business owner or, you know, however, again, however you want to use the words is a multi-decade. Like this is my identity. This is my family. This is like my community. I think there's a huge spectrum of these, of, of, and none of it's right or wrong. In my opinion, it's all no. how well do you understand what you want? And most people, they think they are more in your camp and then they go to the deal table and they're like, you better not change my fucking logo because I like the name yeah, or whatever it is. And it's like, wait a second, the whole deal, multi, you know, 10, 20, $30 million deal is going to get blown up because you, you don't want us changing your logo. And so it's, just, yeah. you know, it's the opposite emotional thing that you talked about. You buying the house for that. Same thing happens when people are selling. So I think yeah. this is this challenge that people don't know and they haven't thought through it. Yeah, they don't know. They haven't talked through it, and then which 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 brings us maybe to sort of like another another piece of uh, another piece another thing that's important about learning how to fly an airplane is eighty percent of eighty percent of flight training is is emergencies. Eighty percent of every eighty percent of the times you're flying with a you you know you're going to take off right. So um, oh here's here's the best um, or a good one that I can think of is like remember the Sully Miracle on the Hudson landed that airplane in New York City a couple of years back two hundred eight seconds of terror birds in the engine blah blah blah. So so the question is you know people look at like oh my gosh I can't believe he did that that was amazing and it was how did he do that well how many times do you suppose Sully landed an airplane on the Hudson River or on a body of water and. The answer, well, what do you think the answer is? How many times do you think he landed a, landed a, what is, I think it was a 737. How do you, how many times do you think he landed? I'm going to be a bad student. I'm going to ask a clarifying question. Are you talking virtual simulation or in real life? Exactly. And so, <laughs> exactly. Real life, I'm hoping he didn't do it in real yeah. life a bunch. <laughs> in real life, one time. But in his 30 year career as a pilot, uh, as an airline pilot, every six months, he went to Atlanta to a place called Flight Safety where they get checked out and they fly these big, amazing simulators and they do all the emergency stuff, including ditching an airplane, which is what, what landing on the water when you're not meant to means. And so he didn't just make all that shit up in 208 seconds. It was all muscle memory for him. It was all decades of training and preparation because 80% of pilot training is training for emergencies. When I'm when I'm like learning how to fly, when I was learning how to fly an airplane, four out of five times, you know, you put you know push power and you're climbing out, and the, your instructor will reach over and pull the engine back. He's like, "All right, you just lost your engine on takeoff. What are you going to do? Where are you going to land?" And that's and that's what you do. And and I know it's like, okay, gas, make sure my fuel is on, undercarriage, make sure the gear is down, mixture, make sure that you know you know gumps is what it's called, gas, undercarriage, mixture, props, seatbelts, and you do a gumps check. Just like that, you know, and I, I, I can't even tell you that story without leaning down because I know where the fuel valve is in a Cessna 182. And that's the airplane that I like to fly. And so, mm -hmm. you know, gas, undercarriage, look out the window to make sure the gear is down. Don't assume it's just because it's a fixed gear airplane because you may be flying a different, you know, so gas, undercarriage, mm -hmm. look and make sure the gear is down. Mixture, you know, full, full rich mixture. You're getting all the, the right amount of gas into the, into the engine. Props, full forward, which is like first gear on an airplane uh, in a car. And seatbelts, make sure everybody's buckled up. Once you do gumps, then, you know, you find a place to land. You like trim for maximum. So all of that stuff just happens because we've mm -hmm. done it so many times in training. We can't not do it. When uh, once upon a time, when 911, but, but once upon a time, 411 is a number that you would dial to get information. 
Mm-hmm. You'd call for, hey, can I have the phone number of Pizza Hut or whatever? And when 911 came out, in emergencies, what would happen is people would dial 411 in an emergency if the house was on fire or whatever, because muscle memory. We just do what we're trained to do. Uh, you know, adversity doesn't build character. Adversity reveals character. So when the shit goes down, I'm going to revert to type. I'm going to be the person I really am when the pressure is on. And so pilot training knows that. We mm-hmm. know that when the pressure is on, we need the pilot to go gas, undercarriage, mixture, props, seatbelts. That has to happen. And it has to happen without thinking because you're thinking about a whole bunch of other things at that moment. You're thinking about mm-hmm. your life, your family, that girl that I should have, you know, it's like your whole life is flashing before your eyes and you've only got muscle memory. How many times in business do we practice for emergencies? Uh, only when the shit's burning down. Right. <laughs> in real life, not in a simulation. <laughs> in business, we only practice for things going well right? A Harvard MBA spends all that time at that beautiful, fancy school learning all about businesses that function perfectly every time. And then that poor fucker goes out and starts working for somebody like me, and he never sees that perfect scenario. And then what they have to fall back on is like conversational skills, basically, right? Yeah, I know how to email etiquette. I don't want so somebody it, who, who's going to talk in an emergency. I want somebody who's going to do, right? I want Sully. <laughs> well, and so like, think about like in, with that example too, is I think it's a great way to articulate because we're trying to build muscle memory with this show and the training that we're doing. And because when you get to the, when I say you, the sellers who have done this once, maybe twice, get to the deal table, mm-hmm. the private equity firm, the strategic buyer is doing the, everything that you were just doing muscle memory, like, oh, yeah. they did this, we're doing that. And like, by the way, because they're focused on the emotion of like, hey, how, like, what's, what, what shit's going on in Will's head because, oh, he wants this. And then they're pulling these levers and they're just sitting there, you know, hey, Will, have another beer. <laughs> and they've yeah. got all this plans going on. They've got the muscle memory. How would you relate your, like, your muscle memory when you were going to sell compared to the buyers and that dynamic? It was what, so, so there's a saying that there's a saying, um, you know, whoever wants it less is going to win. But, <laughs> It's kind of a weak ass strategy if you think about it, right? And so, so there were times in the negotiation where, where, where things got to a point that I didn't want them to get. And I could see the other guy's point and all the math all made sense and everything like that. It's just not the way I wanted it. And so a couple of times during that conversation, I, I had to or chose to say, well, gosh, this, this really would have been great, guys. I'm, I'm so sorry that, you know, I totally understand and I respect and I don't, I don't want to you know, I would never presume to to say that this is worth more than you say it is, or this va- this thing is more important than, you know, you think it is. I would never presume to question you because clearly you're the experts. It's just not going to work for me. And so thank you. You know, I'm really grateful for the time. Bye-bye. And so, you know, so I would walk away a couple of times and then my lawyer would call me. It was like, well, what in the hell? And, you know, so I'm like, sorry, Tom, it's just like, it's not going to work. And and I meant it every time I said it, and then they would come back and we would adjust and all that sort of stuff. But it's, but again, that, that Brinksman level negotiation is not professional, right? It's childish. I'm going to take my marbles and go home. But when you're not prepared for it, when you haven't been coached for it, when you haven't trained for it, when you haven't sat down and, and like literally role played and gamed out 
a couple of these negotiations because you can bet the guys on the other side of the table. They've done this a hundred times. They do this all day, every day. And so you're not, not only bring simulation, a but in, in real life. Like they do, like they 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 know all the scenarios, yeah. and they do it in real life. Yeah, it's like meeting the president, right? It's like, oh my god, it's like this. I'm going to meet the president. And it's like a, it's this moment in your life. President does that shit 200 times a day. <laughs> it's like, hey, look at another person. Yeah, yep. and so so it's really important that the most important event in your life. It, in a perfect world, it's also the most important event in the lives of the other people who are in mm-hmm. it. And the and the bigger that gap, the wider the gap between the importance of the event to you and the importance of the event to the other guy, that's going to determine who calls the shots a lot of the time. Because my because you know every single time we got to that in my my negotiations, my choices were well, it goes or it doesn't, on or off, binary. But for them, it's like, well, you know, we got 16 of these deals going. I'm hoping that all of them come together this week. But, you know, if one of them doesn't, I've still got 15 more deals, right? So so how do you manage your mindset around that? How do you manage your, your tactical situation? You know, how do you manage your behavior around that? What vocabulary should you use? And, and, and if you go into it cold, you know, I was just smart and lucky and lucky. Yeah, maybe three luckies and one smart <clears throat> and one hardworking. <laughs> So, um, but it would have been so cool if I'd have had a coach for that particular event. That would have been pretty freaking awesome. And, so uh, and- I want to, I want to go into the like because I know we've probably got about let's call it like ten more minutes. Um, is you do the deal? Curious on any anything for deal structure wise that you liked or didn't like, but also into you being an employee. I, I just. And all of a sudden having someone, uh, 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 I'm going to call them the hall police of your speed in the hall. <laughs> like, well, that doesn't seem conducive to, to who you are. Yeah. I refer to myself as like executive vice president of came with the deal. Right. <laughs> and I remember the, I remember the first one of these conversations was like me and the CEO of the other company and we're having a lunch and we're just guys. And I'm like, does anybody think this is just guys talking? You know, we're pals. I'm like, I've never seen you before in my life. And, um, but we go through, so we go through all of that. And then, you know, and, and at the very first lunch, I was like, you're probably not going to want me around after this is over. If we actually do this, you're probably not going to want me around. So why don't we just like, why don't we just like have this conversation the, the way it really is, which is I'm a terrible pain in the ass unless I'm the boss. And I remember it. I remember it clearly. He's like, no, dude, like you're, you know, you built this thing. This is your DNA in it. It's really important. And da, 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 da. And I went to Ivy League school and I know to have a really good conversation. And and he's just like saying all the stuff he thinks I would want to hear when really what I wanted to hear was like, yeah, you're a horrible pain in the ass and I wouldn't piss on you if you were on fire, but I need to get through this right now, which respect, right? Because, you know, I'm yeah. just like the poor kid from Austin. And so, so, but Okay, fine. And we go through the whole thing and I'm an ex- executive vice president of came with the deal and they might have needed me for some stuff because I do know some things and technology and bodies buried and data centers and moving things from here to the yon. What are we going to do with all of those employees up in Connecticut? We got to, you know, we got to like manage through that. So yes, I was, I was necessary for a while. And so, but what I realized very early on is like, you know, we go, to, we go to web.com where it was like, basically like me, Kathy and Vive, like, like the, you know, uh, Steve Marks and Ivan Becker, right? There was, there was like five of us who ran this company and we all did the jobs that we managed, right? I mean, it was a very, mm-hmm. you know, it was, you know, we were lean. You knew what you're doing. 
And my first week at the new thing, I go in and there's a big building and there's lots of people all up and down the hall and hundreds of employees and everything like that. And I go into the conference room for the, you know, whatever the, whatever the, the executive meeting. And there's 19 vice presidents in the building, in the room. And I'm just like, you know, I'm just sitting there and listening to the thing. And then it's like going on and I can't, I can't sense any real, any real, you know, agenda or process or pattern. It was just like, it didn't, I'm laughing. it wasn't my laugh. kind of meeting, I guess is the best way to say it. <clears throat> and so, so on day one, as executive vice president of came with the deal, I'm sitting there and, and, um, and, and, and I raise my hand at the, at the back of the thing. I <laughs> well, at least my you hand. did that instead of shouting something out, right? Yeah. And, uh, and dude says, Hey guys, you know, Will is a former CEO of web.com. And, and I was like, I'm just curious. I know what I get paid. I'm going to assume that everybody in this room gets paid about what I get paid. What do we do? <laughs> this is like a $40,000 hour long meeting. Exactly. And that's what I, and that's what one of the things that we would do at web.com. I was like, all right, welcome to this meeting. This meeting is going to cost $8,750. That's the cost of this meeting and putting everybody in this room for the next period of time. And so that is what this costs. Respect. <laughs> so like, and I'm doing meeting, I'm doing like cost of the meeting math in my head. And I'm like, oh my God, I mean, just what I get paid in this scenario. And my job is like exactly nothing, right? I am, I am tasked with no responsibilities. And, um, and then, and then I'm like looking around the room and I'm like, it just, I was such an incredibly bad fit for that. And did you have an employment contract, Will, or was it an earnout or both? Like what, 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 what financially, you don't have to get the dollar. I'm a little little NDA about the, about, about some of the things, but there was something on the line for you to stay there. I'm assuming. Yeah, no, they were, you know, it's like, you want to, you want to incent people to stick around and make a contribution and you want it to be in the best interest of the organization. By the end of my first day as an employee of this, of this newer, uh, bigger thing, it became pretty clear to the leadership that my best contribution to the organization would be absence from it. And so, so I love it. And and it's important to know that, right? It's important to know when you're, you know, and and so like I believe, and and the data suggests that it might be true, I believe that that I was probably the best qualified guy to run a fast growing web hosting company and lead that team and all of that stuff. But that wasn't my job. There was some other guy who had that job now. And mm-hmm. so while I may have been the best person for the job or, or, you know, while I may have been the right person for the job, I wasn't in that job. My job was to do something else. And I wasn't going to be a good fit for that because I just, I can't, you know, I, I can't, if, if the emperor has no clothes, I'm going to be like, dude, you're dude. naked, right? I just can't <laughs> not point that out. So again, you know, did I get fired? Did I resign? Was it mutual? You know, it's like, you know, yes to all. That's going to vary based on who's, who's telling the story. The, the facts are, is that I owned and operated web.com. We got acquired. I was employed by the company that inquired us for a short period of time. And then I moved on and we all wished one another well. And web.com is alive and well, and it's a happy company and it's growing. It was actually the company who bought web.com from me actually faltered pretty significantly and then was acquired by another company. And then that company has kind of like grown. And so that's the web.com you see today. The guys that bought bought my company from me are not the guys running 
it today. But again, it's a it's a very weird thing. And that's where you have to, because my customer at web.com was the person who registered a domain name and bought web hosting. That was my customer. And the people that were most important to me at web.com were the people that worked for me, my employees, right? And so think Branson, right? Take good care of your employees. They'll take good care of your customers. When you when you shift, and that's and that makes all the sense in the world to me, right? The customers are the people that are paying the money. They're the ones who want the service. The employees are the people who are delivering the service. My job is to care for, lead, and serve the employees who care for, lead, and serve the customers who pay all of our salaries, especially mine. Mm-hmm. That was sort of like the web.com value respect model, if you will. Angel investor, venture capitalist, public markets all of these things, what happens very quickly, and and you know, you can you can either accommodate this in your head or you can't. Who's the customer in a publicly traded company? Well, the short answer is the stockholder is the customer in the publicly traded company. And the rest of us are like, right? So like, I am not the customer of Amazon. I am not the customer of Facebook. I am fuel <laughs> for those yeah. things as, yeah. as an individual human person. Now, if I buy a share of Amazon stock or a share of Facebook stock, then I'm a customer because that's the that's where the real money comes from. The real money comes from the market. And then all of this, all of this transactional stuff that happens, it's it's important and it's involved, but it's not the main thing. I think that that is an insanely important distinction that every single person listening or out there that owns a company needs to understand. Because I think privately held business owners will that haven't raised a bunch of money. So privately held partnerships, family, what, however you funded it, whatever it is, they, they instinctively know that because you know, I, mean, I can't only manage, imagine the shenanigans that most business owners pull to get their first customer, to get the first partner, to get that best, you know, unicorn, first unicorn employee. You know that it takes a freaking village to do the shit that you want to do. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you see like, and I think so many people, incorrectly believe that all the buyers are the same way, which is the exact opposite. It's like, boom, shareholders, limited partners, carried interests, all which, again, I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong. It's just a knowing the dynamic and then how that main goal drives all of the decisions that are going to happen there, there and now. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And, and like you said, it's not that, you know, there's no right or wrong of it. Right. But, but, but like for me, the end user is the customer. I know that the person who pays money for the service that the company delivers that in my world, in my mind, in my ethos is the person that I'm responsible to. And if I'm a, and if I'm all of a sudden I become a publicly traded company and there's these shareholders, the board reports to the shareholders, their shareholder meetings, all of the decisions get made, you know, upstream from the customer experience, that's fine and well, and that's what makes the world go round. And that's, you know, again, right. I, I benefit from that all day, every day. Peggy doesn't really tell me exactly how, but I know it happens because I own stocks or something. And, but that's, but it, it is of like no interest to me as a business person. I just, I just, I try, right? Because I'm smart and I understand money, and I'm actually, a, I'm, I'm actually like a, a, a Series Seven registered guy, right? I'm like, I'm a licensed stockbroker. <laughs> of, of course, you are. Of course, you I am. That in the, of course, yeah, I'm way, curious about I am too. Like, but, but like, so, so I, so I know some stuff about that. But like, what I, what I end up the other end of it is like, yeah, I, okay, I understand how all of that works right now. I'm still not interested. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter to me. I want to, I want to, you know, I want to build a widget. 
and sell it to my customer and then check in with my customer and make sure they love it. And that's perfectly fine. So the, so the next level of guys, when the company gets acquired and there's angel investors and all of that sort of stuff, I mean, I can, I can deal with the, like, um, angel is probably where I say angel, maybe VC is probably, I can live in that world because at that point, right. You know, the let's, let's draw the line between like, you know, VC funding and IPO, right. Right after IPO, I'm not qualified. I'm, I'm not qualified. I don't want to be part of that conversation from a leadership perspective, right? I, I still want to do, and I've worked for lots of publicly traded companies, helping them manage their leaders and helping them do process and logistics and all of that sort of stuff. And Gold Boss works crazy good for all of those things. But as an entrepreneur, the farther I get from the end user customer, the farther I get from the employees, the people who do that work, the less joy I experience, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm, well, not, I think I'm just like, I'm a... and that's perfectly fine. Again, if I if I wasn't that guy, if I if I really did understand and embrace and find the art and the beauty and the value and the love and and all of those things at that you know that other end of the spectrum, I'd be a fucking billionaire. But <laughs> I'm not, so I won't. <laughs> well, and I think it, it, as we're wrapping up here is. Um, yeah. God bless Minnesota. It went from negative 20 degrees to 35. <laughs> so it's a 55 yeah. degree swing. So going back to like, and I think one last note on that, Will, is that, you know, not everybody that listens and most people that listens are not going for the public markets is private equity is it's either ESOP internal transfer or private equity and mm-hmm. the private equity spectrum of flavors is infinite. So like knowing this stuff is the only way to decipher whether they're a customer first or all stakeholders or just the investors is yeah. you just, it's almost impossible because it's not so clear, like, oh, it's only shareholders. I mean, it's very difficult. Yeah, it is. And, but, but like the first step in it is just like the first step in it is, is finding ways. And I think, and I think you can really help with this is finding ways to help entrepreneurs and business owners sort of like illuminate their blind spots. Let's go find out. Right. The first time I knew I was in the wrong room was when I was in the room. Right. It's like, you know, so like day one, newweb.com, 19 vice presidents and like, you know, Crap. they're, they're nope. looking at me like they're afraid I'm going to steal the soap. Right. I mean, I was I did not belong in that room and um, and they didn't have to be nice to me anymore. And I never felt like I had to be nice. To them. So I was just like, but that was the first time I knew it. Nobody ever said to me, dude. After this goes down, you're going to find yourself in a conference room and you're not going to know what in the hell any of this is for. It's not going to make any sense. It's not going to be, it's, it's part of an important and valuable and viable and legit process, but it won't make sense or work for you. And you're going to fucking hate it. And your job is going to be to hold your nose until you vest. And like somebody needs to say that, you know, I mean, I like, I, I figured a way to accelerate the hell out of that process, but, um, you know, cause it's like, but, Which, but that's what, another story. And the end gone, we'll have to have you on back. It's, to, 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 to yeah. It's like, it's like, Hey, should, if we vest this guy, we can get him out of the building. It's like, that's a great idea. But that was, that was an important thing. And so like, so how many times, how many opportunities can we find to help business people and you'll never, you'll never know it until you go through it, right? You won't, you don't know what swimming is like until you swim, but 
we can describe it a little bit and we can say we can describe maybe the levels of discomfort and the and the confusion and all that stuff and it's like this is going to be uncomfortable and confusing and you're going to wish you were at home <laughs> for a lot of these things and <laughs> and here's why and so i think that if if i could go back and do anything it's just like when I dropped my daughter off at college, you know, a couple of years ago, I dropped her off and, you know, first kid off to college and I drop her off and, you know, bye-bye, have fun. She's in the dorm and I'm scared and she's scared and there's all of these kids around and I drive down the road. Dude, I got 200 yards down the road and I had to pull over to the side of the road and cry for a half an hour because I was done. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, you'll take it from here? What the fuck? Right? I mean, and <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I was totally blindsided by this. I didn't know it was coming. And I called some friends of mine. I was like, call my friend Jess. I was like, Jess, oh man, I just dropped Ellie off. He was like, he was like, did you cry? I'm like, yeah. He's like, yeah, that part is the worst. I'm like, why didn't you fucking tell me <laughs> that was going to happen? Right? And so that's, he was like, oh, well, it never occurred to me. So like now I tell everybody, right? And so if you've got a you're baby gonna cry. You're and gonna, someday they're going to go to college and you're going to drop them off, you're going to get 200 yards down the road, Ryan, and you're going to have to pull over to the side of the road and cry like a baby because everything you thought you were for is over. And that's a fact. And so, so how many of those opportunities do we have to like just let people know there's mm -hmm. going to be this insanely uncomfortable event that will be the result of you having done an excellent job building a company, raising a child, whatever, whatever it was. So amazing. And, and as we wrap up here, I'm going to have a, two questions and I want, I want you to spend a couple minutes uh, or explaining how you're doing this with Goal Boss. What's the goal with Goal Boss and what, how is that feeling, fueling your satisfaction and the things that you're doing? And then, uh, and then we'll wrap up. Well, well, Gold Boss is a very simple thing. Gold Boss is the part that nobody wanted to buy when we when we uh, when we sold Web.com. It's like, hey, we built a leadership system and it's a process and we got training and all that sort of stuff. And they're like, yeah, we'll take it from here. And so, so Gold Boss is kind of the answer to how did you do that? And and so after Web.com, I started doing consulting and I've still built a couple of businesses here and there. Just um, you know, the van business being an example of that. But the the Gold Boss leadership system, and I wrote a book about it, and you can get the book, and and is like the consulting mechanism that I built to to do good coaching and consulting for companies a lot like the one that bought web.com and and also you know heating and air conditioning companies and real estate companies and all sorts of different things because because the business management system that is Gold Boss it works for any kind of business any kind of organization and because I'm technical and because I know software and because I know data and all of this stuff I wanted I wanted a system and a process to manage my coaching business so that I could keep the client up to date on where we were at with things, measure things, document stuff. I've never enjoyed spreadsheets. I love databases, however. And so, so how do we, how do we collect that data and present it to the customer? And since everything I ever built, I built to be scalable. When I built like the Goal Boss app, the, the coaching app and the, the consulting app that exists that, that I use to run that business, you know, we may as well build it so that it's highly available and highly scalable and so that you could run any number of coaching businesses in it and cage one from the other and keep it secure and all that sort of stuff. And that's just how I built it because it's the only really way I know how to build stuff. So I accidentally built a coaching platform that'll work for an infinite number of coaches for an infinite number of clients. And that all exists. And so I did that for many, many years since, since web.com up to sort of like the beginning of COVID traveling all over the world, meeting with people, doing speeches, all of that sort of stuff, road dog, road dog life. COVID happened. And I just, I just 
took the year off and that's why I built the Sprinter van and that's why the van business exists, right? Just 2020, I was like, hell with that, man. I'm not getting on airplanes. I don't want to do Zoom. And then at the beginning of this year, over that quiet time, if you will, I realized that essentially my customers, since I left web.com, my customers were were basically sort of like privileged executives, right? And, uh, you know, rich white guys is pretty much where my customer is. But I've also had an opportunity to to like work with all sorts of people just kind of on a low-key quiet basis, solopreneurs and stuff. And so so the the mission of Goal Boss, and so we renamed Goal Boss to Goal Boss Mastermind, and we created a free community that you can go join, you know, go to goalboss.com and you can click the join button, you can join for free. And the goal, the mission of Goal Boss Mastermind is to make the Goal Boss leadership system and all of those tools available to anybody who wants it. And so, you know, because up until then, you know, you can have all the gold boss you want. My rate is $23 a minute. And um, and a lot of people I've come to learn can't pay $23 a minute, even if the product is awesome. Now we figured out a way to make it available to anybody who wants it on, on sort of like a good, fast, cheap pick two basis, right? And so there's the so there's the free version. You can hang around. We got talks, we got tools, we got information. You can learn it. Um and then if you want the like the whole thing in two, three days, no problem. We can you know power right on through that. Good, fast, cheap pick two. So that's that's the cool fun thing that I'm doing. And the surprise of it, because there's always surprises, um the surprise of it is like I'm gonna say 99% of consultants and coaches don't have their very own enterprise-grade, software-based leadership client management system that they use Mm -hmm. to run their business. Most of them using like spreadsheets and charisma. Spreadsheets and charisma. And and spreadsheets (laughs) and charisma. I'm not taking away from that. They're valuable and they're important. But like 80% of what should make a business happen is process and tools. And so that's so that's what's happening is this the surprise part is like coaches are finding me and saying, hey, man, can you teach me how to do that goal boss coaching thing? Because that looks pretty cool. And so now that that brings up a whole bunch of it's like, well, yeah, we can we can sort of. So we're certifying some coaches and we're going to train them to do stuff. And then we're uh, so there's so this it's very interesting, the weirdness that's that's happening. And so we're going to start to become a place where anybody can go to get kind of whatever kind of coach they want. We're going to be, we're also making relationships with different business providers. We came up with a question the other day, what are the 10 things every solopreneur needs? 10 services. And so we're, we're finding and sourcing all of those things so that we can make that stuff happen. Oh, super cool. Super fast. Um, so yeah, it's, it's turning into its own thing. And again, it's the, it's, it's the team, it's the members of Mastermind. Those are the people that are leading me and telling me how to how to build this thing. But uh, so it's it's a heap of fun. Uh, and we'll is it goldboss.com? Is that what you said? Pardon? Goldboss.com. Is that where the listeners yeah. should go? And then the, the last question, Will, is what does the word intentional mean for you? It's an important word. I think I think what it means to me is I think it might be a it might be a good test for a behavior that I'm that I'm observing in myself or in somebody else, right? Is this intentional, right? Is this behavior intentional? What am I the the thing that I'm doing now, the conversation that I'm having now, the work that I'm doing, the thing that I'm building, the stuff that I'm buying, the stuff that I'm selling, what is my intent? What do I want to get out of that? What does the end of the runway look like? What does the horizon look like? Does the rest of the world perceive also that my intent is X? Because if like, you know, if I say, hey, you look great today. 
you could take that in a hundred different ways. And I need to make sure that you're interpreting my behaviors and my words the way that I would want you to, because damn, right? So, so that would be the, so that would be the thing is that what I think of when you, when you say the word intentional, what I think is like, all right, what, if I'm doing something on purpose, I'm doing it intentionally, but what does it look like, you know, at the end of the runway, what does it look like on the horizon? And does everybody else see matters. you? And does everybody else see you landing the plane that you think you're landing? <laughs> yeah, 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 love it. Yeah. Well, this has been so much fun. I'm so happy we made this work. Yeah, thank you, bro. I'm really grateful for the time. I, 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 uh, I look forward to. I, I hope the editing's not too, not too. Horrific. Oh no! Oh no! We will not. We'll have round two when that NDA is uh, <laughs> null and void. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. All right, my brother. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. <laughs> I don't think I've laughed so hard for so long during an episode. I mean, I could have kept talking to Will. I just want to go play with him, whatever he's doing, whether it's the, the the sprinter vans or whether it's the big RVs or the roller coasters or whatever the heck Will is doing for fun these days. But the the big takeaway that I have is his pilot analogy is amazing. Everything we do today impacts our long-term plans if we have them. And if you want to create more choices and what you want to do with the business, with your role, with your wealth, long-term, having that clarity of your ultimate destination and the things that you want is so important because it's going to help put solid intention today on what you're working on and how to course correct if things are going wrong and also how to identify if things are going wrong. If you want to know more about how to get that kind of clarity, go check out the Intentional Growth Training. It's at arcona.io. We've also got a tab with five videos and all the different uh, five principles. Gives you a flavor of the training as well as put some context behind uh, what it is that uh, you're trying to accomplish, which is clarity. Again, thanks so much for tuning in and I appreciate you so much and I will see you next week.